welcome to Technology Tangents. We get leaders together to discuss the important tech of today and the implications for tomorrow. Our discussions are fun, lighthearted, and frankly opinionated, but hopefully it gives you a sense of what matters, what to pay attention to, and what to ignore. Happy Monday, Jason. It is a Monday, unlike a normal Friday when we normally do this. Well, I heard that you all wanted more brain power from me, so uh, we'll see if this works any better. Well, I'm totally unprepared. For being work. a Monday morning. Monday so morning, last prepared. Friday? Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> like fish tough. are still on the brain as opposed to your uh, potential. There's hope. Now there's just dread. I haven't had the whole week to be unprepared. I've had just a few hours. <laughs> okay, fair enough. And Kevin, how are you this morning? I am doing great. I'm excited to be here. Glad we could uh, talk on this brisk First fall-ish morning here. Fall morning in Texas. You know, 45 degrees. Here we are in the middle thought. of October, and we finally got our fall morning. It's pretty, fall, pretty early, by the way. Fall is the best weekend of the year in Texas. <laughs> that that's good. Well, listen, I want to talk about Gen AI, as always, because that's all that I ever want to talk about, I think, these days. And since I uh, control the mic here in the script, I guess that's what we're talking about. Sorry, guys. No, but I think it's a really interesting moment in time because we're starting to see, of course, real adoption. People are using AI everywhere. Of course, we give lots of talks on this. We're actually seeing real sort of POCs happening in the real world, et cetera. Developers are using Copilot at remarkable rates. The remarkable thing, though, is that despite all of that success, people like Microsoft are hemorrhaging money on Gen AI. And I want to kind of kick off there. So if you think about Microsoft's first product, Copilot, in this space, again, I think truly revolutionary, really powerful. Have you used it, Jason? Yes. And what do you think? Very powerful. It's going to change the game, right? Yeah, we've had like lots of uh, implementations, you know, with with some of our clients where we've seen some, you know, we were hoping like to see some like 50, 60, 70% improvement. But in some cases we've seen, I saw someone produce some things the other day that were showing like a 3x improvement. That's insane. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's remarkable what it can do. And despite all of that, somehow they're losing money. So, so again, the way it works for Copilot today, people go, they buy it, they pay, what, 10 bucks a month or something, and then they can use it. What's remarkable is the early days of Copilot, Microsoft, some people with knowledge, quote unquote, according to this Wall Street Journal article. So I'm going to, I'm going to take their word, they fact check this, I assume they did. I mean, Microsoft was losing about $20 per month per user in the early days. And now we're seeing it closer to $80 per user per month worth of losses. Oh, what does that mean? Like, how is that true? And by the way, this is not using to Microsoft. We're seeing Zoom, of course, roll out their new AI assistant here, where it's going to summarize notes for you, transcribe it and summarize for you. Really powerful, really cool. In fact, Jason, I've been on several calls where you see, you see the output of that pretty neat. A bunch of other people like Otter, et cetera, have the same sort of technology. The challenge is these things are incredibly expensive to run at that kind of scale. I'm curious as we start diving in here, so I'm going to give you a chance to think about the question a little bit, but I'm curious, like, how do you start designing business models around that? I mean, if you think about it, software is typically a world where you get these economies of scale, where you effectively go build something, you can roll it out, you spend a lot of upfront money on R&D, and then you're like, great, now we can take R&D to zero, our costs, our sort of marginal costs are effectively zero, and all of it's profit, and that's why they trade at such multiples. But in this case, so far, that's not true. In fact, we're using it for things like summarizing your emails. It's a bit like using a Lamborghini to deliver a pizza. Like the economics of that just never will work. And so I'm curious, like, how do how should companies start to think about this? Well, I'm not sure how the Wall Street Journal calculated all that. They, they relied on a source who has knowledge within Microsoft. Okay. Even still, you know, Copilot is a big topic. Does that include like Copilot for Excel and 
you know, co-pilot for PowerPoint and co-pilot for Word because they make a whole bunch of money, right, on Word, Excel, and all of that. And and if those numbers are just some startup costs, or even if they're long-term ongoing costs, but they sell a whole bunch more Excel, Outlook, and those type of things, it just seems like a very simple analysis to me. Well, so your point is the business model then is Copilot might be a loss leader, but really what you're getting is all of the other services. These are the bundling of Microsoft, sort of their master game plan. That's what always. they do with with everything, right? right. Like teams, for mm-hmm. example. The thing I would add me right now is that there's a bit of fear of relevance. And so right now, companies trying to not necessarily gain market share, but to get users, get traction with looking through that, knowing that there's going to be some winners and losers. And if this is the next wave of kind of technology, you know, you have your established players who can make those investments, whether they call it R&D, whether they call it losses, whatever they call it, and how they make money. It's going to really be around who's going to be here five years from now. And I think that that could be part of that element of that. You know, I don't think for them, they probably don't look at it at a per unit cost of loss for that. It's just really trying to make sure that when you think about developer tools, AI, they want you to be thinking about Microsoft and they'd probably like you to do it, not in the context of how you think about office products or, or search products, the ones that trying to work through. It's also a bit interesting around, you know, just what the, the makeup of Microsoft profits and revenue between, you know, their different divisions. I mean, this is theoretically going back to your office bundle. I mean, we should be, we've been talking about from a developer perspective, but I mean, the office bundles at risk. I mean, I mean, these tools are going to be able to significantly change why we use those tools, how we use them. So I'm just curious how the hell it's going to play out. You know, I used Office as an example because, again, really saying, you know, Copilot is a much bigger product line or set of tools than it, than it is just the, the developer tool. But even within the developer tool space, right, it's part of GitHub, GitHub Enterprise, GitHub Codespaces, all of those things. And again, is it a way to just, you know, Visual Studio and, and the developer tool sets? Is it a way to get people tied into those? Yeah, I definitely think it makes sense. And, and so then I, that business model could work, right? I mean, we saw this when I was at Microsoft, I got everything from Yammer, of course, and we kept it a freemium product. Like the point was not that we would sell it and make money off Yammer. It was that it could be an on-ramp to the larger ecosystem and finally get people up to these E3 bundles, which is what everybody really wants because I could do everything in some sense. The question then becomes, if you're not Microsoft, if you don't have 800 distinct pieces of software that you can go sell some new plus cloud that you can put on top of that to really make money everywhere else, how do you start using this technology then? Is your answer, you can only use these generative AI tools if you're going to bundle it with a bunch of high profit margin stuff in order to eat the costs or... What do you think will happen? Well, it's a good question. Others that are in that situation, like Microsoft, let's say Amazon, for example, Google, right? they make lots of money, both of those, and say, well, we're going to bundle those tools into kind of the ad buying or merchandising platform on Google, or we're going to bundle those tools into AWS, and you can use a whole different set of models for, for whatever your product you're building on top. You could build things on top of some of the Google AI products as well. So people will continue to consume those. And I think, again, you got to look at it. Is it just, if you're Amazon, do you care if AWS Bedrock makes a profit or do you care if AWS Bedrock drives enough usage of other things to make a a bigger profit? Sure. but So so again, I think that's the same bundling play in some sense. And I think that that makes sense. I think you can make that business model work even in the long term. But if you're consuming it then, right, right. you don't incur those costs, right? Well, so Those R&D costs. The R&D costs, no, but even right. per call costs is the point here, right? Okay. Like, I think that's where these things do still add up quite a bit. Yeah, that goes back to our, our what we always talk about was like, you have to look at the business case for this thing and make sure that it makes sense, right? Whatever, whatever use case you're using to drive AI with, you know, what's the business case for it? 
interesting. I haven't thought about this until this fine Monday morning, but if you look back at the late nineties, you think about early stages of the internet and you've had these, you know, these big, at that point it was, you know, Hey, I'm on Netscape on AOL, I'm early Google. Like it was really around, that was everything it was. If you start thinking about some of those parallels to, you know, we're not thinking underlying line internet or data layer. You're thinking about just being, Hey, the companies that are driving that, that are controlling that, the models, everything else. It's an interesting question. You know, is it really around what is this next iteration of, of really AI and, web internet data and you know companies trying to really buy for the being supreme in terms of what that looks like and really changing this next ecosystem it's, it's a different way to think about it than this kind of hey i can just go out to whatever platform of choice and ask these questions and how much do we spend to cultivate models how much do we spend to just process it's gonna be really kind of fascinating to see how that plays out and i do think that companies with bankrolls right now are probably not asking a lot of business questions. I mean, they, they look at this as a risk mitigation strategy that they have to throw as much resources into it as possible. It's going to be interesting to see how do smaller companies play if they have to rely on models from the bigger providers. I think that that's probably the case, but frankly, similar to what's been happening you know, when you still had to use you know, certain vendors, uh, whether you thought of that ecosystem to do that as well. But it is an interesting question around what be then ultimately becomes propriety and what makes you want to go one versus what copilot do you choose? Go that tool versus that tool? Or do you start having specializations within that? So more questions and answers, I think, this morning, but intriguing on what it is. But no one goes bankrupt anymore, right? So it doesn't really matter, <laughs> does <fine>. it? <laughs> Everybody's too big to fail. No problem. Yeah. The, well, I think it's, it's a really interesting point. And I think that this leads to your point is Look, it's an existential crisis for most companies. They see this as truly a sort of company-ending risk if they don't lean into it. So they're, they're obligated to in some sense. And I think we're seeing some of that, no doubt. My question, though, is like, I mean, it's one thing to lose because you didn't do it. It's another thing to have sort of a Pyrrhic victory where maybe you make it and you've done the thing and people associate your product, your tool, your company with generative AI or AI more broadly. But it's so expensive, you don't even turn a profit anymore. And like, how do you balance that risk or, you know, is it just too early? You don't, you just go for it and figure it out later. I mean, we're assuming that they're not going to be able to eventually turn a profit or they're assuming that there'll be different elements of that, like, which is good assumptions. I mean, around the same point of what, because I don't know if you can completely thinking about that. I mean, they're probably thinking about, at least in Microsoft's case, you know, you got your division, different parts of your business and, you know, there are laggards in certain elements of that and where they control, like this is for them, probably their bet to try to have a more of a leading product i guess i'm not sure i understand the question or the concern because i mean how, how is this different than any other you know startups like we got a whole slate of startups right they all go raise a bunch of money and then they burn a bunch of cash in the first two years and yeah. hopefully they get profitable and some do get a little profitable and stick around for a little while some get like wildly profitable and the long tail of them go away right and i think that unlike it's all startup i think it's a lot of I think it's a lot of existing businesses where it's like, well, we've got to go invest in it. And a lot of those investments will work out great. And some of them, or let's say some of them will work out okay. A few number of them will work out great and the long tail of them won't work out at all. And so I don't see it as any different. Yeah, I think to me, what feels different this time, and I could be wrong, I'm just pointing the conversation a bit, is it feels different than how we typically build software. Typically, when, when we're doing these kinds of things, we're talking about spending, you know, building and training AI products it takes, I don't know, hundreds of millions of dollars and more than most types of software, really. It takes 
a lot more risks. You don't know if it's going to work out for you. And sort of the way we talk about this, you don't really know if the model is going to perform as well as you'd expect until after you go do it and you build it. So we can't really write you know, the code and the specs in the same way. It's harder for us to build the business cases conceptually. It feels different in that typically you get economies of scale. So your per unit economics actually improves as you get more users on your platform because the sort of foundational costs are fixed. So the incremental cost of doing a Google query or Bing query is you know, one one millionth of a cent. All the infrastructure is super expensive. Crawling the web the first time is crazy expensive. Indexing all that's crazy expensive, but each incremental use is zero. This is different insofar as every time you want to ask something, you don't benefit from that economies of scale. You have to go query that whole database again and have the per inference cost in a way you don't have any other place. And if you want to do security in depth and make sure that you're not getting weird results, you're not doing it one time, but two or three or four times throughout that stack, you can't cache the results in the same way we typically have. You can't get these efficiencies that software normally offers. And I think that's what's so different to me, or at least feels different. Uh, again, I'm not sure. Uh, address the two points. The first one is, you know, people that are going and investing hundreds of millions and billions of dollars, not knowing if it's going to work. Like, again, I don't think that's any different. Like how that's AWS, right? And Azure, you know, they had to spend a lot of money to build out those solutions. Nobody knew if anybody was going to build by the cloud. I don't think that the idea that like having to make a big bet for existing companies is without a lot of certainty. I don't think that's any different. I think, you know, the, the cost per inference question, you know, or, or the unit economics question. I mean, I think there's a higher cost per inference than like a normal, we build a, you know, a search index like Bing or, or Google, and then we go query it. Okay. Well, there's a big cost to build it. The query cost is very low. We build an AI. There's an enormous cost to build, host, you know, and train that. Like, the, but the inference costs are very low compared to the training costs. It costs a hundred million dollars to train these things. The inference costs are like two cents. Okay, maybe it's maybe it's not point oh two cents like a search is, but it's still a vast difference between that and and the training costs. And so, let's say an ad you were in a place were five times more expensive, right? Would people still place ads? Probably as many, maybe not. Like, what does that economics look like? I don't know, but I, I don't think that there won't be some way for companies, you know, to, to make money on it. But I, I get what you're saying. I just think that it's not really any different than any companies do. It, and if it changes the unit economics, it changes them for everybody. One thing that's kind of intriguing, again, uh, second thing that I'm learning here on a Monday morning or making thinking about differently, so I appreciate the questions, Vincent, is really around what is... If we fast forward a few more years, we have more like what are people buying when you're you know, when you have an AI solution? Are you buying access to the model? Are you buying access to the data? Are you buying the processing power? Are you buying the solution? And in really around if you think about it from the perspective is that I've got a trained model that allows me to do all these things at a greater efficiency. So I'm essentially replacing, you know, the dollars it takes for me to do human capital or other processing power now into this. And you actually had a few firms that are able to kind of corner the market, so to speak, on whatever those models are. At some point right now, instead of the 10,000 models or whatever it is out there, there becomes more specialized ones. And you were willing to pay for that access and you had to pay for that. It's an interesting question of what the economics go. And maybe in some ways agree with both of you in the context of that there is a startup cost element of this. There's a little bit of like, hey, we're going to have to throw money in it to see. But what ultimately determines who is the winner? I mean, I think we've seen in cloud, you know, we know why the, the, you know, the three main players are kind of ultimately 
got into that, at least in the U.S., I'd be curious on how many winners and losers are there on this. I mean, you've, it's and what are the parallels to search, to cloud, to whatever else the different versions of technology are? And if same development arc, or if it's on a different path, um, I'd be, argue that it might be different based on the fact that uh, the training is so individual, potentially individual to the use case that you're trying to do it with. And right now it's with simplistic you know, efficiency tools, but I would think it's going to be a lot more specialized in, this, in, the, in the time ahead. Well, and I think you've got not just the enterprise use cases, you've got things like self-driving and you know all the other you know research for proteins and, and all the other use cases as well. I think there's there's a lot of different economics and all of those. But you know, just back to the enterprise use case, let's say that some of the examples we've seen with clients are right and it cuts development time, for example, and, and analysis and testing time in a third. Right. So like, well, how much would you be willing to pay for that license to cut it into a third? I mean, whether you keep the people or and just get three times as much stuff or you let some go. But like, you know, when we see what the outputs are I think the, the economics will work it out. I think to your point, I, I do agree that like we are going to have to see what that works out to be to know what those economics are. But like, I, I, again, I don't think that's different than any other, you know, big bet that any company makes on technology. Like we never know if it's going to work out or not. Yeah, that's totally fair. Uh, although we didn't know that Bitcoin and uh, blockchain was not going to work out the way people were talking about. Jason always loved we that. We did. We did. <laughs> Jason was always a big fan. Yeah, he loved it. Yeah. He loved it. Just yeah. go back and listen to this we, I think you have a mass in your pocket. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Well, I think to that point, it's a, it's a really interesting moment. And part of what brings this up in my mind is that to your point, you said it's better to go like, you know, interest rates are high. We're no longer in this zero interest rate uh, regime anymore. And borrowing costs are through the roof and money's hard to come by. That led to uh, some shifting wind in the economic, macroeconomics, frankly. That, um, you know, it continues to ebb and flow. I think I was definitely a lot more bearish at the beginning of the year than we've seen. <laughs> Although it has, it has actually, we're down negative now for the year, finally. Um, so that's maybe come true, maybe not. You could argue either way on that. I still am pretty bearish as we look towards next year. But I might be in the minority now. So Great Wall Street article just came out yesterday. Uh, that is that according to them, surveys that they've done with economists, the probability of a recession has actually dropped below 50%. So maybe no landing at all. There's no question of hard or soft landing anymore. There's just no landing at all. And I think what's driving that are a few things they talk about. Really three key factors are articulated in this article, at least around inflation continues to decline. Uh, the Fed is done raising interest rates, which I think is a question mark to me at least, but they think it is. And uh, the last one being a robust labor market. And I think that those three things combined has really changed the forecast from there being, you know, north of 60, 65%, even just a few months ago to now below 50 for the first time, basically all year. My question to you guys is again, like as a business leader thinking about this, what do you see? How do you then play in this environment? Of course, being tighter with costs is, is the big play we've seen since January, effectively. Everybody sort of pushing right, as we like to say here at this firm, everybody pushes right. We're going to kick out, kick the cost down the road. Gen AI, more broadly speaking, has really picked up some of the energy and enthusiasm around that. And that's really why we started off with that. But then the second part, and this is, I think, really goes to the heart of some things you brought up before is, this could be one of these strategic moments when you can get really great talent. So I'll pause there. I have some more leading questions asking in a second, but I'll pause. Any reaction to any of that? I still believe that is a great time to get talent. I think what is intriguing to me, we spent the first you know, half of this conversation talking about the changes that are happening in AI and what it looks like. Uh, it makes complete sense. But I'm also I'm intrigued, though, still by, generally speaking, I think the West Coast is not 
fully functioning. We're not seeing private equity dollars. We're not seeing a lot of momentum and energy. Uh, you're seeing the whole TMT sector to be you know, relatively flat. You're seeing still a shedding of r- roles and jobs that had come out of that space from the growth through COVID. And so it's a bit of a interesting question. And then you and you overlay that with uh, you know, some of the technology tools we're talking about. I mean, are going to have you know, knowledge workers and technology workers are going to theoretically be some that will be most at risk. And so I think it is an interesting question uh, of like, what is the overall fundamental um, health of the economy, health of certain sectors? And so for me, for most of the folks in, on, uh, who listen or listen to this about, I'd be very much looking after for talent. I think there's going to still be a lot of ways to do that. Now, right now you're going to have to, everyone's putting AI on their resume, whether they know what AI means or can even, uh, that's all the extent of it. So you have to dig into it, but I think you can still find high talent. Um, you see, you know, the other thing that we've talked about in these, these podcasts before is really around the impact of where you work, how you work. You know, that's still a, compet- a the- theoretically competitive question. Most of companies, large companies have gone back to a return to office policy, whether that's because they believe it actually produces productivity or if it reduces their headcount or reduces their costs. I mean, there's probably a bit of truth to both all three of those things for each individual company. But um, bottom line is I'd be investing in the talent that you need right now to continue to work the next stage of the growth and development of your firm in this unsettling times. And what say you, Jason? I'd like Vincent to design an experiment for me. All right. And I would like to have a bunch of pigeons pick economic results at random and then compare that to the economists in the last five years. I'm going to guess the pigeons win. Listen, right? the pigeons are really good at cancer. Yeah, that's right. So they, maybe they would yes. do well here. It's hard to say. Are they exactly. partisan pigeons? No, no, no. Just like totally random pigeons. Depends on who trains them. Exactly. How many, how many uh, economists have been right the last five years about anything? But I do think that probably... You know, we're in this period, you know, I think the last year where things have been not terrible, but tougher than expected. And that probably continues. To that point, this past year really has been a, a truism of your favorite Mark Twain quote. Yeah, Mark Twain said, I'm an old man and I've experienced many troubles in my life, most of which never happened. <laughs> yeah, I'm really reminded of that for at least the past year, which is there was a lot of fear, uncertainty and doubt given everything going on that people really pulled back budgets in anticipation of consumers reacting and they just didn't react. They refused. YOLO was the theme of the year from my perspective. But go ahead, sorry. Well, but, you know, I think it'll continue to be maybe not as bad as some fear, but tougher than some expect, kind of somewhere in the middle there. I agree with Kevin that you probably can go find some talent and if you make some smart investments, you can get, I think, a a leg up on your competition that is going to try to cut their way to the top over the next year. One thing I think is uh, remains a, an interesting point is that you think about the uncertainty going into this year, and and I don't think people predicted maybe a late Q4 really into what AI would become the theme, and we need something for us to be optimistic about. And I think so AI drove, drove a lot of different elements, which leads me to a point that we've discussed a lot on this podcast, You know, where ultimately companies need to be strategic. They need to understand what they're trying to do, where they're trying to operate, what they look through that. And it's the firms that respond or try to predict what's going to happen. that are the ones that often struggle. And so I would be, you know, these are like going back to the basics, but know why you're, why do you serve your customers? How do you serve their customers? Why do employees want to work with you? How do you want to have that strategy be, you know, have a pick a path and actually work through that. And I think where companies get themselves in trouble is that often 
react to the stimulus. We don't know what's going to be there. We, we lock the different fads. And I think that this is an interesting moment because you're starting to, you see a moment of time coming out of the last three years now with the technology, you know, a shift in technology that's going to continue to change how companies work, how people react, how they live and all these different elements that you have to choose. You have to choose what you're going to do. And I think that's what I think is going to be really intriguing. It's what's intriguing about this, our business and how we help and serve clients, how we advise clients is really around have a purpose, go after it, be consistent, change where you need to. I mean, again, basic building blocks of how you run a company. And I think that we get companies get lost. And I think it's a chance for people to revisit those different core themes. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah, what, what he said. I, I, yeah, plus one. Well done. Yeah, plus one. <laughs> plus one on that. All right. So Monday morning works well for you, Kevin. I Jason, love it. we're yeah. still waiting to see. We'll see how it works after a fishing weekend. Like maybe we should try Wednesday and hit in the middle somewhere. <laughs> well, I think. Look, my point here is I think it's really good. Good insight, which is like don't get too caught up in the hype cycle, if you will. To your point, Jason, earlier, like with AI specifically, build the business case. Like, don't go do it for the sake of doing it. Really build the business case, knowing that it. To your point, it probably will be existential if you don't go build the business case, and the business case should highlight that if you do it correctly and if you need help. The thing I was going to go to next, though, is is this point about be strategic and take advantage, right? Like, let no crisis go unused. I'm not, what is that phrase? Let no crisis. Don't waste a crisis. That's what it is, yeah. Yeah, you got to be strategic about this, and I think my point there is, like, don't don't waste a crisis here. So we're seeing a labor market that's insanely hot, or, or so the headlines would lead you to believe, but if you sort of double-click into that, it's a little bit more nuanced. So no doubt you're seeing places where, you know, uh, the numbers are just like all time lows. People are easily employed. Uh, if you look at these numbers, very, very, very low unemployment. And yet you're seeing that some jobs, strategic jobs, are actually in a very different spot. So specifically, if you're seeing things like information technology jobs, the, the industry that we spend a lot of our uh, careers in, the overall employment you know, was 3.8, but that area specifically is 4.3, it actually rose. So this time when overall is decreasing, that industry specifically rose. And in fact, you're seeing that you know the overall number of jobs is also shrinking. So not only is unemployment rising, but actually the number of jobs is actually contracting at the same time. And so really IT jobs, the market more broadly, and the opportunities are very poor, frankly, um, at best. The remarkable thing, though, is you see some jobs with an IT, like those that are remote, actually look really promising. You're seeing thousands of people apply for the same job. And so as you start decoupling this, back to your point for AI, I suspect that as, as a somebody looking, somebody's really great, somebody on the market who or could be on the market if the right thing came along, you have these moments when you have a few levers to really set your company apart to attract this amazing talent, right? So one would be you could do remote if that's your thing. You could be more AI focused if that's your thing. But I think that really using this as an opportunity to be strategic about how do you acquire talent that you couldn't have afforded, that you couldn't have gotten even six, 12 months ago, this is the moment to strike. I think another couple of things to throw in there and at the risk of being a little bit uh, longer in the tooth in our careers at this Monday morning is that, I mean, I think it's this, we're also going to see a moment where values and character matter. And they always do, but going back for companies to say, hey, what type of workforce do you want? Whether it be those characteristics you described, location, learning. But I think that one thing that we continue to remind ourselves is that we have to have an environment, a culture of growth, curiosity, learning, how that works through that. 
it's possible that over the previous three and a half years, the primary job criteria for someone is if they had a pulse and for many fields. And so now we're not in that scenario. And so you have a chance to actually go back and say, what is the group? How do you want your company to run? Who do you want in your company? What are the values you're going to reward? You know, and what does that look like? And when you're in an environment of great constraint, uh, you're not able to actually set policies around that and in, in, in my opinion and and so i think it's going to be interesting to see how companies look at their talent what's the skill sets that work through that uh, we've also long discussed on this forum around just the fact that what is hot today the skill sets that you need today from a technical perspective are going to be very different very quickly i think ai is only going to accelerate that even more whether that be you're actually in technology field or you're selling technology services offering technology products we're going to have to be extremely adaptable and so i'd be encouraging uh, companies to go back and even double down much deeper on how do you foster an environment of change foster an environment to where people are going to on their own accord or be willing to do what's necessary to continue to stay relevant versus relying on a company to do it for them. Yeah, I think it's really interesting important. Maybe it's, we should have that one as the next pod, which is really, what does that retooling look like in this new world and what, what should companies do? But Jason, any thoughts? Well, I always take unemployment data in context, right? And that context is the labor participation. <laughs> is that rate. to imply that I didn't? No, I'm just saying... <laughs> I'm just saying he likes the New York Times, not yeah. the Wall Street Journal. I was going to no, say no, no, no. clearly I've done something wrong here. No, I like the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> I'm just saying that you also have to look at the labor participation rate, right? Which is, you know, it it was in steady climb until 2000, from really from the end of World War II all the way up to you know peak of around 68, 70 percent in 2000, and it's been steadily decreasing since then down to like what is it, 62 percent right now, something like that. So, yeah, there's lots of jobs but there's also a lot of le- a lot fewer people looking for them and so you have to factor that in and i think in the tech space specifically the reason that may look different is because there are probably i don't think a lot of tech people not looking for jobs right now and so i do agree though that with kevin that wow it's like kevin i'm just agreeing with everything you say today you know it is going to be an issue and you know i think of these as the towns like when the mainframe people started moving away from that or people started moving the cloud. There are people that will want to invest and retool themselves. You know, there's always a a friction point in those transitions. There are companies like, let's take the web 2.0 kind of revolution, mobile revolution. There are lots of companies that kick off and some of them work out, some of them don't, but the few that the winners kick off and hire lots and lots of people. The question is, are you going to retool yourself to be in those groups? And and I do think to your point, like, you know, I think there's a, a shift in the workforce of expecting someone to do that for them, right? Versus I'm going to go do that on my own. I don't think that's going to work out for people because I think the people that do go invest in it on their own are going to take all those great positions and, and or the others are going to be behind. Well, I think another question for a future discussion will be around what how do those continue to change education yeah right and, and really what we think about how do we teach what's the technical skill what is a code core domain knowledge versus what's a capability and as we've also or i've joked in this before on the rise of liberal arts majors but there's some truth to that in terms of i really the value of critical thinking skills versus domain knowledge for a lot of different areas or potentially will be changing that has a pretty widespread impact uh, if we think about the investments that people make, companies make, what does L&D mean? What is, you know, before you come into the company versus what you do within the company? And so it's actually, I find it actually to be really exciting about that. I mean, I think it's because I think there can be a lot of ways that you could have, have finding very valuable employees is going to be potentially different, not different so much where I always think that the, the 
character values, those things are always what I think is makes and strength of most employees. I mean, there's very few possession or professions where, you know, just pure domain knowledge alone allow you to be successful. But how an, an average company thinks about employees and growth is going to be interesting you know, going forward. Education is a really difficult one, I think, or an interesting one. There is somewhat like the invention of the calculator, right? Is, does it change education? Well, no, I mean, you don't have to learn to use a slide rule anymore, which I do know how to use, if, in case you're curious. I did learn how to use a slide rule. You still rule. remember, though? Yes, I, was I still remember. Isn't, how he, isn't that how he calculates the length of his fish? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just about. a ruler. <laughs> okay, well, I don't have to multiply things out, you know, or divide things out in long form. I can, you know, once I understand the concept and I know which numbers to multiply and what that means, I can use a calculator to do it. I think a lot of these tools will be the same. I do think there's some really interesting stuff that I've seen. I sent you an, an online course. I won't say the name here, but this weekend. AI for dummies. No, <laughs> where I thought they did a really good job of like, or walking that, that tightrope of like, well, how do we use the tools and use the stuff, you know, to to get rid of some of the low value, you know, just time consuming stuff versus how do we actually, you know, teach concepts and have people understand what they are doing and what these things are doing. That that course I sent you, I thought like did a really great job of walking that tightrope. And because of that, I, I took I just took it just just to try it. I took a a ton away from it you know and it's an area where I have a lot of experience and even it's an introductory course for one of the online schools and i thought it was really really insightful and i think that people will figure that out like i, I think some of these really good programs will will help figure some of that out and then people will just adopt all of that yeah i mean i think it, it it'll be really interesting to see here right because i think we all are aligned to that there's a huge oppor- set of opportunities within virtually every industry of automation in a way that is transformative i mean i think that goldman sachs published an article some study they did where they show that office administrative support, 46% of that could be automated. Legal, 44%. Architecture, engineering, 37%. Business, finance, 35%. So uncertainty. We've all seen some version of this like huge amount of automation, huge amount of benefit from things like ChatGPT or you know large language models more broadly. The weird thing is historically we've seen these moments, whether it be the internet or electricity or whatever, it's humans get in the way at the end of the day. And as a result, it takes a long time. I mean, if you think about the internet, you know, developed in the 60s, it took till the 90s, basically, for it to really be useful. And so while, you know, they estimate that a quarter of the work tasks in the US, especially with high exposure into those things I just said, could be automated, you know, there are some still that have low, like physical demanding jobs, construction, maintenance, repair, et cetera, that will not be as disrupted at the moment. The question is what will happen and how long will it take to get there? Because people historically at these moments are very, very reluctant. And so it'll be curious because I think this is also the first time where to me, the unique thing that's happened is that everybody with no particular training has access to the power. It doesn't require programming or sets of esoteric knowledge. You can get pretty good results from things like ChatGPT and Imagine or Stable Diffusion Etc. They're not great, and with a little bit more practice, to your point, you start to learn where they're really actually quite good. I don't know. It might be different this time. I think that's the struggle that I've been thinking about a lot. Is just this question of I'm certain that over time we will get there, and it will change everything, and it will address this point of labor participation. To your point, like we just have few people working. That's fine because each person can do much more with less. Some estimates show about three percent GDP increase. We'll see, but. 
I don't know. Thoughts? You know, if you look at any productive endeavor, you've got a bell curve of productivity and, and output, right? Designing images. I'm really bad at it. I do a really bad job. Now I get a much better tool. I can do a much better, but it's the people that were much better that could, you know, probably not as good as they can do today. You know, they get much better as well. So I don't know that it changes the distribution as much as it translates it. I may be wrong on that. It may change the shape and make, make that bell curve much narrower, but I do think it's a translation. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I do wonder, though, you know, there is a point of diminishing returns. And I do wonder if, if these tools are good enough that they're only in the most exceptional examples. Would you value that incrementality that a human could still do? I don't know. Maybe. And maybe that's what, you know, pushes things right and squeezes, you know, compresses the curve a little bit. But I, but, I mean, you're but right. then, like we always talk about, there, then there are going to be other things that, that uh, come up that need creative endeavor, right? Completely agree. Yeah, I mean, I, no doubt. Which say I think I I'm the worst at PowerPoint. In fact, my solution to PowerPoint is just put pictures on every slide, and the decks don't mean anything to anybody but me. But I'll talk over it and it'll be fine. I think in a world where this stuff is done automatically, generatively, I will create way better decks. And the question is, is that good enough? Probably for most of what I <laughs> but, do. But well, yes. But I think what I'm trying to say is, creating the deck is not the creative output. It's what questions are you asking that and answers are you finding to those questions that then you go put in the deck that are of value, right? And and just because someone can build a great deck doesn't mean they're going to have the ability to go ask the right questions. I completely agree, but right. this is my point is this is why I love partnering with, you know, the likes of designers who, who can take my ideas, my questions, and put them in a format mm-hmm. visually that's stunning and beautiful and really communicate something different than my terrible picture with a mediocre headline. I think that my point though is like that piece because you're right there's value there i think there's absolutely i will absolutely pay for that every time there's value there any closing thoughts from you guys and we're basically at time here but yeah mondays don't work for me is apparently because i'm like okay i'm like what am i trying to say i don't know not making any sense i'm just like agreeing with kevin which like that is problematic in and of itself Okay, that was my, that's the closing thought is that Jason agrees with me. So we'll just make that. sure we keep that documented, listen to that, and we'll have good it's discussion. It's recorded. Here it is. It will be stored on the internet forever. Every AI will be trained on it. Therefore, when asked in the future, does Jason agree with Kevin Erickson? It will respond emphatically, yes. And here's my proof right here. No, it was great. Thanks for the time this morning, guys. I do appreciate it. Thank you to those of you who listened to this whole thing. For those of you who would like to learn more, please visit the insights page at Cordero.com. Bye-bye.